Welcome to the Olive Tree Podcast channel. Whether you're listening from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust that you would feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community, and that you feel inspired by today's message. Uh, welcome to the new year. Just in the, in the interest of um, full disclosure, we filmed this uh, in 2020. Uh, so all of us here are sitting... Uh, imagining how wonderful it must feel to be watching this with 2020 as a thing of history. Um, and, and on the other hand, we're all sitting here thinking smugly that we're going to get through Christmas without getting fat. Uh, and all of you right now know how vain that hope was <laughs> as you watch this. Um, but we, we really are, are going to have a conversation that uh, we, we're going to have here, and then we can't wait to share it with you as you watch this. Uh, so I'm going to be chatting to my friends here and the staff about... Um, such a difficult question, such a, uh, a raw question that we very rarely do a proper job uh, thinking about it. Um, so just, just call to mind any prayer you've prayed that hasn't been answered. Like, let's just go there, okay? And 2020 would have been littered with them, I imagine, plenty of prayers uh, that you were fervently praying that for whatever reason, the answer wasn't yes or the answer wasn't forthcoming. And it seems as though the prayer didn't work. I just want to go there. I, I, like, let's just figure out what you actually do with that. Because if you're anything like me or anything like most folks, what we tend to do with those kind of crushing, disappointing moments when it feels, if we can be so bold as to say, it feels like God's just let us down, we tend to just let time remove that far enough that we then don't really need to answer it. And then we kind of happily go along and we ask our churches to be really uh, optimistic, and we sing songs about, I'm going to see a victory, I'm going to see a victory, and we start to think we really will every time, uh, and we tell lots of the, the 5, 10, 20% great testimonies, we tell those stories and we ignore, if we're honest, the 40, 50, 60, 80% where the outcome's not great. Can we just be honest for a second? That's what we rely on our churches to do, to build up, build up our faith, and that's fine, that's part of the privilege, I guess, of church. Um, but it does mean sometimes that time lapses and you just forget about, like in my case, the number of children I've prayed for who've died. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with the children, my own, in my family, in my church, where they didn't live? And I couldn't understand why the answer to that prayer wouldn't be yes. Or what do you do with the the family that's already lost one and then has to bury another and bury another? Or the the person who gets swindled out of the last little bit of money that they were investing with a friend and what was supposed to be their big faith launch of business, God has called me to this, and then it crashes and burns. This sermon is dedicated to the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks that Jesus says he's so gentle he won't snuff out. We're going to go to that question. And the question really is, what can you actually rely on God for? So don't worry, next week Olive Tree is going to go back to being really upbeat and exciting and we're going to help you to get back up on your feet, ready to go again for 2021. But we would be so irresponsible if we just went, oh, thank heavens that's over by 2020 and didn't just for a moment work out, what can you actually rely on God for? What are you absolutely sure you can depend on him for in your life? Uh, this preach is, is inspired by a conversation I had with a really amazing man, a good friend. I won't say who, but they've been through just the most brutal year, which would have been brutal regardless, and then corona happened on top of it. Um, 
And he loves God, knows a lot about God, has served God passionately his whole life. And he called me over saying, Paul, I just want to have some conversations about what parts of my faith actually still stand, the test of the season he's just gone through. And we always say that you're not supposed to let your experience dictate your faith and your, you know, your theology must, must dictate your experience, not the other way around. But again, like, let's not preach for a second. Let's just talk about what he must do with his experience that makes him go, I wonder if all these songs, I'm going to see a victory, I'm going to see a victory, I wonder if that's always true of every circumstance. And that was a fascinating conversation with me. For me, I had another conversation with a guy who is a pastor, he's now in business, but he's run churches, really learned guy, writes, theology, um, and he was saying, oh, my wife runs an NGO, and she's always thanking God for how he provides. That's fine. I feel like I fund it because I know that I go to work and I work all day and I get a salary and then I see the money go into running the NGO and like, don't tell me God's funding that NGO. I am. That's fine, but like, let's call it what it is. Another pastor I know of is starting to say, I just don't know if prayer works the way we used to think it works. Is anyone able to resonate with those kind of questions? Can we be honest enough to, to ask that kind of question? Is God really reliable? And the answer could be no without being blasphemous. Yes, what I mean. It could be that much of what we think we can rely on God for, we actually can't, and that's okay because God is still good and glorious. I'm not saying this is the answer, but I'm saying it could be, because if we're going to ask the question genuinely, we have to be able to accept a yes or a no to the question. It's possible that you could say God is absolutely into his glory, absolutely into his plans through redemptive history, throughout the entire story of humankind, that he understands things from an eternal perspective. And that means that what goes well or badly for you in your 30, 40, 60, 80 years on earth is like really of very little concern to God. And he can still be good. He can still be about getting you saved. He can still be about doing good things in history. He can still be about his glory. And he has the right to be that. It could be that the answer is no, you actually can't really rely on God for protection or provision. And he could still be good and glorious. It is a possible answer. Many great theologians do get to some kind of conclusion like that, saying his ways are far above our ways. It's not for us to understand. People as wise as Job were able to, and that's a book of the Bible worth reading. I mean, I, in my great wisdom, as a sort of late teen, young adult, got uh, jilted, got my heart broken, and so then decided I need to go and read Job. Like in, looking back, like that wasn't the worst thing that could have happened in my life. But at that time, this was like, you know, heartbroken. Ah, uh, I need to go read Job. And I was just reading Job, you know, like um, there's this classic thing where Job gets boils and then he breaks apart and he's like scraping the sores open, you know, sitting on the dung heap. And I was like, that's me. That's how I feel. Because the 17-year-old girl thought someone else was better for her than me. You know? um, and, and I remember there's this point where Job says, even if he slays me, I'll still trust him. Maybe that's the point. Maybe God is so after your character development, turning you into someone like Jesus, that actually, with that end in mind, all the means are okay. I could, I could get my head around that. If God's going, my goal is to get you to be like Jesus and do good for you through eternity, which means if you're 80 years on earth, suck, and you're on the dung heap scratching your boils with a broken piece of pottery, saying like Job, even if he slays me, I still have to figure out how to trust him. If that's God's plan in your life to develop character, that's bleak, but I can get my head around that. And if that's what it is, then don't tell me to sing, I'm going to see a victory, I'm going to see a victory. That's just cruel. Right? So we're going to examine this question. And the way we're going to do it is, um, 
we're going to take our cue from a famous French philosopher called René Descartes. Now, he's my guy. I mean, Descartes is just incredible. I should have checked this. I think he's operating like the 1700s, so long ago. He kind of crushes math. So if you've ever worked with a graph, it's called the Cartesian plane. Remember that term from school? He invented that, that you can use formulas to figure out how lines work. Um, he didn't just crush maths, then he crushed physics. He figured out a theory of matter that made sense, and atoms were, up till then, we'd been working with Aristotle's ideas that aren't really right. And having crushed maths and crushed science, he then got into metaphysics and tried to prove the existence of God, possibly unsuccessfully, but then gets into epic philosophy, okay? And he wants to come up with one method to make all knowledge make sense. And so Descartes' plan, I think it's actually... It's genius. He, he started with the premise, let me doubt everything it's possible for me to doubt. Let me, let, let me not, I'm going to hold on to being rational, so I'm going to doubt what I can rationally doubt and see how much I can erode with rational debate and whatever's left that, I, that it's impossible for me to doubt, then at least I've got something solid to build from. So he goes, well, can I trust my senses? And he starts to go, well, my eyesight, actually, no, I can easily be tricked by mirages. And so he goes, and so he goes, to the point where he says, even the basic sensory information you're receiving, you could be dreaming. And you have sense data that you receive while you're dreaming just as much as you have sense data while you're awake. So how can you really ever be sure that you're not in, and this was a long time before the matrix was developed, but like, how can you be sure you're not in some sort of medically induced coma where someone very kindly, maybe God, is just feeding you a lovely fiction to keep your brain occupied while you sleep? Can you be sure that you're sitting right where you are right now and that you're not naked in some pod with machines sticking things into your, you know, the ports in your back? Like, prove to me that that's not the case. And you can't, because you actually can't get outside your brain. Every single bit of sense information you're receiving is coming through the semi-trustworthy network of your senses. So Descartes goes, well, I, can, I have to doubt all my senses. And he keeps trying to doubt everything he can doubt, and he gets to this famous final resting place where he goes, but I, I can't doubt that I'm thinking. Thought is taking place. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And that's where he starts from, that I exist because I can think. And you can't doubt that you think because you have to think in order to doubt. Uh, and so from there, he then starts to work out. So we're going to do that to our faith if you're brave enough. We're just going to go, okay, what's, let's be as cynical as possible so we can get to what we absolutely know we can rely on God for. And then let's see if we can build something beautiful from there. Um, and this is going to, the people who are in pain, whose faith is wavering, are going to enjoy this. The optimists like me, this might be like taking your medicine, but please do. I mean, so so Tim, um, Tim quoted Jeremiah 29, you know, I know the plans he has for me, plans to prosper you, not to harm me, plans to give me a hope and a future. Now, right there, like what God said. And it's not very difficult to look at that passage and go, but God's speaking specifically to a nation. Are you sure that's for you? Now, I think it tells us some stuff about God, and I think maybe it can be applied to you, but you've got to be a bit careful about that because possibly God wasn't talking to you when he said that. He was talking to a nation. A nation, by the way, which he would send into exile, which would go through the Holocaust. So, like, what is that really worth? What, what does God's prospering them and not harming them really mean? Let's look at some other things that God has promised. Uh, he said that he's going to care for us. A few promises are going to pop up behind me. Nahum, the prophet, in the first chapter, verse 7, says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. Psalm 23 is a famous other way of saying this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's a potent promise. God is saying, I'll be with you when dreadful stuff happens. Not, I will prevent dreadful stuff. Maybe he's saying he'll also prevent dreadful stuff, but he's not saying that here. Here, all I think you can actually say, if we're going to be like Descartes, is God saying, when it hits the fan, um, I'll be around as well. Okay, great. Um, now, that is great, but let's sort of right-size what we think. He's saying, Isaiah 43 is another version of this. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. But they might burn everything else to the ground. Maybe. Is my father saying, Paul, no matter what happens, I'll be with you, closer than a brother. I will be with you. But don't assume, don't do lazy exaggerating here and assume that that means bad things won't happen. Jesus says, in this life, you'll have trouble. Now, that might sound negative. That's also incredibly beautiful. Like, if we could grab hold on what God really is saying there, that's pretty amazing. I will be with you no matter what. But the, the matter what might be everything that we used to assume God said wouldn't happen. What about his provision? Uh, I still chuckle about that guy who says, you know, my wife thinks that the NGO is funded by God and I kind of notice where the money comes from. Um, I've had a similar experience because this friend of mine that I was chatting to whose faith has been a bit rocked, he's going, well, the one thing I think I still rely on God for is provision because God has provided for them in amazing ways. I know that I'm the one that sent an email to all of his friends saying, hey, guys, let's support them. And I can see where some of the money came from out of my bank account to make sure that he was provided for in this time. So it's like, well, I'm glad you think God provided for you. Maybe he did. Maybe he was involved. If I'm Descartes and want to be skeptical, I could also go, well, I'm fairly persuasive, write quite a good email, and I was able to rustle this up. Maybe that was just me. Maybe I wanted to do that because of God, but maybe I'm just a hell of a nice guy. I'm not sure. Provision is interesting. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's an epic promise for your provision, which on the, on the face of it seems really great. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. At first, that sounds really incredible. Think about the sort of sneaky tail phrase there, so that you'll abound in every good work. God's goal here is that he'll get you to do a bunch of good stuff, and so you'll have what you need. Now, what I need is a fairly subjective thing. I think I need like a certain standard of living, but it's fair enough if God might think that what I actually need is something way less. Famously in Matthew 6, he says, well, the, you know, don't worry, like the birds of the air have a place to sleep and food and so on, so like, don't worry about what you'll eat and what you'll wear. I'm thinking, well, I have some other things I want to spend money on than just you know, not being naked and not starving. Like If that's what God is committing to, like, okay, Paul, there'll be something on your back and there'll be something in your stomach. Like maybe his perspective on provision and my perspective on provision are quite different. Maybe. It's um, that, that sort of sneaky, you know, I'll give you what you need so that you can abound in good works, like that classic uh, Psalm 37, which says, um, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, he'll give me the desires of my heart, but wait, are you saying, God, I have to delight in you, and then once I really want you, then you'll give me that. Like that's actually, you're not really promising me anything other than just giving me you which again is huge. I hope you're, you're sort of able to feel like if God is promising me himself, that's amazing. But we've lazily read that and often gone, oh, he'll give me all the desires of my heart. He'll make me look as good as uh, 
Malachite kingfisher. And it's like, well, maybe he'll just give you clothes on your back. You won't necessarily have all the cool colors that those birds have or the cool brands. So provision, we can, we can doubt the level to which God is prepared to provide. Um, and then there's protection. And I don't even know what to do with this one. I mean, let's just... Jesus heals everyone, yes. He also walks over sick people at the pool of Siloam, leaving them for dead, and heals one guy and leaves. I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. Do you? I have been praying lots for people recently and seen amazing stuff happen. And I also sometimes see nothing happen at all. When I'm watching my child be sick and my wife crack under the pressure and pain of watching this child be sick, and I'm praying day after day, and nothing happens until we give them antibiotics. So when it comes to healing, protection, bad things happen. So this is where my mate got to. He was able to get to the point of going, well, look, I think I can't doubt my salvation. And I go, yes, absolutely. So let's look at some of those passages. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think we might be starting to get to some Descartes rock bottom. We absolutely can't be skeptical about this. We absolutely know, I know, I can't doubt that Jesus is God. When I look at the prophecies that were fulfilled when he turned up as we just celebrated at Christmas, there's no question to me that he is who he says he is. The resurrection, you can't doubt the resurrection because then you have to explain the phenomenon of the early church rising up within the same generation, in the same place where this dude just died a shameful death. Like if he didn't rise, nothing that happened after that makes sense at all. But despite the fact that it's also historically documented, you know, historians say that the resurrection is one of the best attested facts of history. So I can't doubt that he's God. I can't doubt that he rose from the dead. And then when he says things like this, I, I absolutely can't doubt that. If I put my faith in Jesus, I will be saved. And guys, maybe that's a bigger deal than we've been making out recently. Maybe all the songs we sing about the healing you'll see or the provision you'll see or the breakthrough you'll see are beautiful but are skipping over the biggest, most potent thing about your faith. He saves you. He can be relied upon to save you. Why do we need more than that? If there is more than that, that's awesome. But if that's all there is, that's enough. If Jesus would go to that incredible length to save me, that's enough for me to trust him. That's enough for me to honor him and worship him. If that's all that's left of your faith after 2020, after whatever you suffer through, is but he saves. Friends, you have more than you think, if that's all that you have. I'm, when I look at the struggles and questions and philosophies, I get a bit bleak. When I think about my Jesus, something changes inside me. Like I just love him. He's just amazing. And he saved me. And perhaps asking these hard questions, if it gets us to camp on that, that's worthwhile. I think we can go a little further, though. So in Romans 8, verse 28, this is the most beautiful, famous, I mean, it's very well known, um, where, where God says, I will, I will bring good out of bad, is essentially what he's saying. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God is saying, I'll bring good out of this somehow. So my mate, as we were chatting, he turned to me after we'd been discussing this stuff because his default, his, his sort of what he wanted to do, what 
is intellectually easiest and most comforting is to say that the lack of answered prayer, the struggle that came, you know, some want to tell you, well, it's because you didn't have enough faith, that you should have had more faith, or you didn't believe the promises correctly, or you didn't apply the promises correctly. There's a whole body of work, and there's some scriptures that make people, it's a reasonable thing to say, that when it doesn't happen, when the answer doesn't come, it's something to do with you. You didn't work the process correctly with God. But he's going, I just can't do that. I can't put that much pressure on myself. But like Job, again, Job at some point says to God, this isn't fair. You have the ability to change people from the inside anyway. So why are you holding me to account if I did or didn't do things absolutely right? I think I did everything right. And you have the ability to sort me out and guide my behavior and make me believe the right stuff anyway. So if I didn't believe correctly, that's still kind of on you, God. You could fix this. And so my mate goes, well, I can't go there, especially in light of everything we know about how you can't be good enough for God anyway. So, you know, I, can't, I can't chalk this up to it's my fault. I messed this up. I didn't pray correctly or often enough or with enough faith or I didn't tithe or I didn't, I don't know, wipe my feet at the door. Or I didn't, like, whatever technique, like I can't be that. I can't go down that rabbit hole. So his, his comforting place to get to was, well, maybe, maybe God is just bigger. Maybe all I have is my salvation and the fact that that he can work on my character, that even if 80 years of my life sucks, he's working on my character ultimately for his glory. Maybe I'll just stick there in the sort of hyper-sovereignty, God knows what he's up to. We can't really influence his plans anyway. He'll do whatever he does. And my job is just to figure out how to say like Job, even if he slays me, I trust him because Jesus is so beautiful. But as we thought about that position, we realized that the problem with that is that Jesus didn't seem to live like that with his dad. Jesus seemed to have this intimate relationship with his dad where he really felt like he could rely on his dad and, the, what, and that in their relationship he could influence his dad and that his dad was going to work in his life based on ideas like the ones found in Romans 8, that he can work in your life, that he can turn things around, that he's the God of the miracle, that occasionally the really good stuff does happen, but leave the philosophy to one side. Relationally, we just had to realize nowhere in Scripture does it seem like God wants you to operate as if he's just some distant force that's doing whatever he wants that you can't rely on. That's not the kind of relationship Jesus modeled. And so we realized that if you camp in this hyper-sovereignty, God will do whatever he wants, there's nothing we can do, you, you have to lose relationship with him. You can't be intimate with someone that you can't trust at all. He clearly wants us to be intimate with him. And so I think we've been asking the wrong question, although I'm the one that titled the sermon, so it's my fault. But I don't think we should be asking, is God reliable? Can I rely on him for the certain things I need? Is he a, a, a trustworthy safety net and source of this stuff? I think the question we should be asking is not, is he reliable? But is he desirable? Is God desirable? Do I want intimacy with him? Is he actually worth wanting intimacy with? Is he that good? Is he lovely? Is he, is he going to feed my soul? Is he committed to my heart? Is he committed to this relationship? And in answer to that, I don't have fancy theology for you because I know that wouldn't work anyway, but my mate asked me a question at the end of that conversation and we were talking about, well, even if it's uncomfortable to not just camp in the sovereign God does whatever he wants thing because we, we want relationship, we've got to go there. Like We've got to go towards this relationship. So he asked me a question. See, Byrne, my wife, um, we were told that we weren't going to be able to have kids because she has a ovarian cyst thing. And then... We miraculously felt pregnant. The child of promise. We'd been trusting God, trusting God, trusting God. Anyone who struggled to fall pregnant will know how exhausting and 
brutal every single day when you're, what, have you ovulated, have you not, must you take the pill? Like it's just in your face every day that something's wrong with me and we weathered that rubbish season and we were pregnant. And I think I've told the story once or twice, but not properly, but my mate walked very closely with us during that time and he remembers that something went wrong with that baby in the womb. This child who'd been prophesied, prophets had come and said, you're full pregnant at this time, and we did. Like, Surely you could rely on this. This is something that God had told us to want and given us. Now the baby is sick in the womb. And so everyone's going, I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. And I was like, okay, let's go along with this. Cool. It feels scary because I'm not convinced, but we'll sing those songs. We'll pray those prayers. We went off to the specialist. Bad news. Everyone, no, 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 no it's fine. Go back to the specialist. Worse news. And Bern and I were just starting to get a bit have you ever had that experience where you're not just not able to have the faith that others around you have, but you're angry at them for having it? Have you ever felt that? We started to feel a bit like that, because it just didn't feel like care, to be honest. Them going, rah, rah, it'll be fine, don't you dare think otherwise. No negative talk, anyone who doesn't have faith, kick them out. I want like, to kick you out. <laughs> um, because this... Uh, I know enough people where it's not gone well, and I don't have any right to assume it has to go well with us, and it didn't go well with us. And although we've been pregnant three times, we only have two children on earth, and that was rubbish. And my mate was asking me about a specific night after we'd lost that pregnancy. In fact, I think we hadn't lost it yet, but the writing was on the wall, so we were in this excruciating, like, terrifying, how's this going to play out, what's this going to mean, what if the baby is born and severely deformed, can we cope, like... Brutal, and we had a praise and prayer, and we were singing that song, You're Never Gonna Let Me Down, Never Gonna Let Me Down. And my mate's heart was breaking for us because he knew what was going on, and he was angry that we should be expected to sing a song like that at a time like that. But he has this memory, more clearly than I have, of me with my arms up in the air and tears streaming down my face, singing that song like a war cry. Um, and and he just wanted to ask me, like, how did you do that? What was going on there? Were you just doing that dreadful thing that pastors sometimes have to do of just putting a brave face on it when it's not what you really feel? And it helped me to go back to that experience. And what I experienced in that process was the radical nearness of God, like I've never experienced it. I felt like he loved us so much. I was so convinced that he loved us. There were just unbelievable sort of moment after moment where at no other time in my life actually have I felt that intimate with God. God was going, who cares about the reliable thing? I'm desirable. And I'm going to show you how desirable I am by bringing my heart very close to your heart. And so we lost that pregnancy, and that was heartbreaking, but my heart didn't break, because just like those promises we read at the beginning, he was right there with me. And I found that his heart was actually enough. The miracles can happen, and I've seen them happen. The provision can happen, and I've seen it happen. The incredible breakthroughs come and don't, but what you can absolutely rely on is not just your salvation. That's huge. But you can rely on God's commitment to intimacy with you. That's what I experienced. And so what I ended up saying to my mate was, well, what do I think Romans 8.28 means? We know that he works all things for the good of those who love him. I'm starting to learn that in my life there are various wells that God can feed me out of. Um, provision, money, you know, like being able to afford my life is clearly one. When that's going well, I feel full. When that's under strain, you feel stressed. Health, obviously, it's an obvious one. When you're healthy, you're stoked. When you're not healthy, it's difficult. 
relational peace around me, you know that you can be as healthy as anything and as rich as Croesus, but if your marriage is in a state, you feel rubbish. So relational peace. And then there are a few others, like fun and adventure for me, exercise, whatever. Intimacy with God, actually experiencing Him, is a huge well that, I don't know that I always experienced this, but I did in that moment. When push comes to shove, you can have none of the others. That one's still enough. Sometimes you don't necessarily feel the intimacy with God thing, but you feel the opportunity to serve. This is one that I used to be good at, and I don't think I've drunk enough out of this well for a while, but serving, giving away the goodness in your life to others can be a massive well that you can drink from. And so they go on. There'll be many in your life. And what I'm starting to realize Romans 8.28 means for me, and this isn't fancy theology, this is just experiential, is that from time to time, one, two, three, four of those wells might go offline. And I'm praying and praying and praying, God, all these promises, Jeremiah 29, you're supposed to give me back that well because that's the only way I can imagine you can prosper me. And God's going, there are these other wells you've not even cracked open that I can prosper you in. Intimacy with me, whatever they are. And in the kindness of God, he's going to give you an opportunity to learn how to drink deeply on those wells. And suddenly you'll discover that that other stuff doesn't matter so much. And the miracle may happen, that's fine, but you'll not need it as much as you used to need it. Is God desirable? Absolutely. Can he be trusted to come close to your heart and do what's best for your heart without a shadow of a doubt? Is that enough to work off for 2021? I think so. So next week, we'll start talking about take two, let's do this again. We'll talk about ways to live victoriously. But even if it doesn't always feel that way, that doesn't mean God's not good. And if you, like I am trying to figure out, can learn how to go, well, God, I, I want to be like Job. I want to be able to say, even if you slay me, I'll still trust you because you are so desirable. If you can figure out how to live like that, nothing can, nothing can damage you. You are untouchable. Your heart will be safe. You won't be rocked by, he gave me a job, he took that job away, he gave me a marriage, he took that marriage away. God gives and takes away. You don't even need a fancy theology to figure out whose fault that was. You just get to go, he is desirable. My heart longs for him. There's a song inside me that he put there that I don't feel right unless I'm singing to him. There is a harmony that he wants to sing to that song as a duet with you where you are walking in tandem with God, which will make the rest of life sing. So, Lord Jesus, however that works for every one of us as we're thinking about these difficult questions, whatever you want to call us, into in this coming year and all the bold optimism and hope that you're bringing us into. Lord, we want to desire you and intimacy with you above answers, above specific results, above outcomes we believe are best for us. Any of the other things we've pinned our hopes to in the past, we realize that it is, we don't know everything about how you work. We can't guarantee a lot of that stuff. We can absolutely rely on you to be the lover of our souls and the, the chaser of our hearts. And Jesus, I want to get a lot better at feeding deeply on that well in my life. Amen. Amen. Okay, go and have a run. You probably need to run off the...
Christmas dinner. Um, and we'll see you next week. We can't wait for this year uh, working with you as a church to do wonderful things in our city. Uh, and so please be in touch with us if you want to join in on Get Connected or any of the things Tim explained to you at the beginning. Uh, otherwise, we're longing to be with you in the building in seven days' time. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to find out more information about Olive Tree Church, please visit our website at otc.org.za or email info at otc.org.za. We hope you have an amazing week.